This episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Away Travel. Are you finally ready to leave your house after a year of being cooped up? Well, you're going to need some quality luggage, and Away has got you exactly what you need. They started with the perfect suitcase and then built from there, creating a range of travel standards developed from the travel stories of the people they met along the way, their friends and their seatmates. And the pieces aren't just smart, they're thoughtful with features that solve real travel problems. And they took the direct-to-consumer approach to lower prices and make sure that that quality is guaranteed. So, you can get in a way suitcase and know it's going to be with you for life. Find out for yourself. All you have to do is go to podgo.co slash away, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O slash away, and get started on that first step to make your journey seamless. Hey, you awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories exists to set straight rumor and innuendo you've heard about your favorite bands and songs. My name is Brian. Oh, and I'm Murdoch. Uh, Welcome. It's important we discuss, before we get started into the actual story, an important musical moment. Or rather, 17 of them, back to back to back to back to back to back. Today, I, wanna, I, I want you to listen to this, and then I, I want to talk about how you feel about this song. Oh, oh yeah, oh. buddy. Wow. Did you ever get to play it on the radio? No. I, I never worked in this format. I didn't work in this format, but I played it on the radio anyway. Oh, man. I, I, I want to know... Your I got an email about it. I, want, I got an email about it from someone at work. Like someone was mad that you played it? Yeah, because it's overnight, and I'm playing a song that's over 20 minutes long. So you, play, like, you well, played could... the 17-minute version? Yeah. So I mean, I could smoke I was going to say, you needed, you needed to go to the bathroom or smoke or something, right? Or make out with a girl? No, I was the... It was smoking, so... <laughs> but, but yeah, oh my God. I mean, I do... I have a... I, I have a really... I've, I don't know, an interesting, you know, experience on how I heard this song. So what, you I know. mean, tell me about it. Tell me about the first time you heard this song and kind of how you feel about it now. You know, I don't think that I heard about it on radio as a kid. I think I, I might have learned about it on television and like heard it on TV. Oh, or, you know, for some, because I'm trying to think about. So what? Where, when I grew up, where would I have heard this on the radio? I don't think I did. And then the thing is, is that I didn't know that the song was 17 minutes long because I was listening to an edit of it. Yeah. So, so I mean, talk about the extreme. The, the version of it that they went and put on the radio was only like not even a full three minutes. They, they cut out yeah. over 14 minutes of that song for the radio edit. Yeah. And there is there is a cover of this song by Slayer. Is that what you're going to bring up? That is that's on the less than zero soundtrack. Yeah. Like there's a, there's another thing. Like when I saw that movie, that was a that was a punch in the gut oh, to watch. Man. That movie. Let's talk about. I mean, this is not where I thought we were headed, but let's talk about less than zero for a second, right? So I have a weird less than zero related story that's very very different from yours. I'm sure. I actually have not seen the film, but I was on an airplane. 
and I was looking through a stack of books before I was getting on the airplane, uh, and I grabbed a book that I had bought at a closeout sale somewhere that looked cool by Brady Sinellis called Imperial Bedrooms. Imperial Bedrooms <laughs> is the sequel to Less Than Zero, but he wrote it oh. years later. I did not know this, so I got it. It's, it's short. It's only like uh, like maybe 150 pages, and I read it in, on the length of the flight or like the, I, the holdover at the airport, and it is an incredibly disturbing book that's very, very dark. And I had to like, none of it made sense because I knew none of the context. So I had to like get on the internet and be like, what am I reading? And then I realized, Oh, there's this whole other thing that happened that I have not experienced. That's happened to me a couple of times. I did it with a Chuck Palahniuk book too, where I like read the book. I just picked it up because I like to just try things. I'm like, Oh, this looks good. And then I found out after I was almost through it that I was like, the reason this makes no sense is this is not the first book in the story. (laughs) So, yeah. And, and, and for, and and for God's sakes, Brian, and for any, any of our, our listeners, our, our regular listeners, if you, if you haven't seen less than zero, Brian, I cannot believe you haven't seen less than zero. It's 87. So it's a, you know, it's, it's a long time ago and Brett Easton Ellis, right. Wrote the story. Yeah. He wrote the book. And, and the, um, the three main characters are Andrew McCarthy, who's like the, he's the one that's trying to make sense of this unbelievable situation that's happening around him. And it's that first semester home after college. And his, his like, it's like his ex-girlfriend kind of is Jamie Gertz. who is so gorgeous. I mean, I was 13 years old. It's blowing my mind. And she's like a model, but she's starting to do cocaine. So I'm a young person finding out about what this is. But she has a new boyfriend, and it's Robert Downey Jr. And the art imitating life thing b- became very real pretty, you know, not too long after that for him in general. And it's a dark uh, movie, but the soundtrack was fantastic. It had a, a, a Danzig was on it, but also um, Slayer covering Inagata DeVita, which made me, for some reason, like the original even more. It's just like a heavy metal song that really isn't heavy metal at all. There's, you know, there's nothing. It's more attitude than anything else. Well, I mean, it's important as a part of the story that we do talk about the massive influence that this song had. My personal story with this song is that I remember, I've probably mentioned this on the show before, but I specifically remember with this song having gotten the Time Life uh, year-by-year anthologies from the public oh, yeah. library, and I got the one from 68 that had and I got a DeVita on it. And at some point, I think my dad had warned me, oh, hey, there's this song. It's 17 minutes long, and it sounds like he's saying and I got a DeVita, and it's written like that, but he it's was in the garden he, he Eden, was saying yeah. in the Garden of Eden, which, again, there's like a biblical reference, right? So, like, I remember this whole conversation, and I just remember thinking, like, everything I'd heard about it, I thought it was going to sound darker and more brooding right but it really doesn't i mean it's almost it almost sounds a little silly now but was it to you as a as a young child that grew up in in a christian church was it sexual it was in the garden of eden baby don't you know that i want you like was it was there something that was suggestive about it at all? It, it didn't. It didn't connect there in my brain. I mean, I was young enough to where I wasn't hearing. I mean, half the time I don't hear past the first few lyrics, right? I don't really put them all together all the time. My, there's a yeah. famous story. My wife makes fun of me of us listening to a Bush album when we first met, and me talking about how much I like this song. It's on, it's on one of the albums that nobody listens to. Uh, 
Golden State, I think is the name of it. And uh, but there's a song where he where Gavin Rosdale says she makes me see God, and he's and my wife explained to me the sexual connotations of that, and I was like, yeah. oh yeah, which you didn't get. I don't yeah. think that's what that means. And she was like, oh, and, you're so cute. Yeah, she's like, yeah, it's like, have you seen Gavin Rosdale? It's exactly what this <laughs> song is exactly about. Exactly what you it means. Ass, you naive man um, has no idea what rock stars are really trying to say to you. All right, so we've spent all this time talking about the song. We haven't talked about the band. The band is called oh. Iron Butterfly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, man, I. this is the funny thing about this, too, is that it later kind of becomes this gateway to stoner rock and gloom rock, right? But yeah. Um, yeah. I would for a while when I was young get a little confused as to which one was Iron Butterfly and which one was Iron Maiden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which right. it's pretty you hilarious. Now. Yeah, now you you know now which yeah, yeah, yeah. very different. So uh, the, okay. With a little bit of historical perspective on it, I would I would say that the song is not that remarkable. Uh and it definitely no. does not need to be 17 minutes long. <laughs> totally unnecessary even if you're high. It is just too long. Yeah. And the production values don't really lend themselves uh, at this time to like ripping face, right? So like the Slayer version is great because it's so aggressive, but it's only three minutes, right? You don't need 17 minutes of that. Um, But it's historically significant for a ton of reasons. So let me ask you this. How much do you know about Iron Butterfly, the band? Oh, just nothing other than they're called Iron Butterfly. Okay. So I'm, I'm ready for it. So this is awesome. Their marketing pitch was that they were arch enemies who had put aside their differences and embraced the power of rock, which, which <laughs> that alone is hilarious. It's like the monkeys with long hair or something. Uh, <laughs> they were arch enemies? But here is, here is I don't think they actually were. It was like the, uh, what they told people, though. But here, here is basically what you need to know. Iron Butterfly had constant lineup changes, okay? From one minute to the next, the guys in the band were rotating for all kinds of reasons. They had a consistent singer for the first stretch. Um, but if you read about them at all, you learn pretty quickly that this huge success they had, which was strange and it's its own kind of, I have my own fascination with just the fact that they got so big and they got a place in history for this one song. Um, I think it was a complete accident, like just a totally strange fluke that this happened to them. Um, They form out of the shards of another band in 1966. They were called Palace Pages, and a couple of them um, put together this other group. They get a record deal on this subsidiary of Atlantic, and they put out a debut record um, that doesn't do much, and everyone but the drummer leaves, drummer and singer. Um, And so they recruit a teenager that they know, literally, he's like in high school, and some other guy who's older to fill out the band, and they record this second record. The, the lead singer is wine drunk at 3 o'clock in the morning when, when he is singing In the Garden of Eden. And they put out a 17-minute song that gets a three-minute edit, and it hits the top 30. And William Morris starts booking them, and they put him on tour with Jefferson Airplane. All that happens within like a year. Wow. I mean, and in 68, like... Airplane is a huge pivotal counter counterculture act. Speaking of counterculture uh, and hugeness, I have a question for you. Okay, yeah. this is not What's where the- we're going with this story, but I read this in my research, and it is worthy almost of its own episode. I'm going to ask you a question. I need you to answer: True or false? Iron Butterfly played Woodstock. True or false? True. Okay. It's true that they were booked to play Woodstock. But in August of 1969, 
they got stuck on their way to Woodstock, New York at LaGuardia, which, side note, LaGuardia is the worst. I still hate LaGuardia. What are your feelings on LaGuardia as a guy that used to live in New York? Um, You know, the last time I had to fly through LaGuardia, I thought, I mean, I was dropping tons of cash in there. But, man, I I had, like, great sushi and cocktails being stuck laid over for, like, They still do this weird thing where they put you in, like, you can't leave the wing. At least the last couple times I was there in the last few years, they were doing um, a bunch of construction. And, like, if you were in C-Wing or whatever, you couldn't leave C-Wing. And there was, like, I had the exact opposite experience. There was, like, no food. It was really oh, strange. Man. Yeah. Oh, I was I was eating sushi. So, and you know, it's so funny you mentioned it. I I I had just <laughs> I hadn't thought that we were going to talk about Iron Butterfly <laughs> at all. But I had just read a thing about um, about the gentleman who had rented out the farm um, oh. to to those to those guys because the original site fell through, and then that man, as the farmer, decided to to let him have the farm for the weekend. And, um, you know, and he was a he was a conservative kind of Republican guy, but he also was a free speech person. And he got really angry when he found out that the locals were selling selling the hippies water and he started giving making sure there were free water on site. Um, And, you know, I, I and he made a speech before Hendrix played. It was crazy. Um, but you know, there's only supposed to be 50,000 people there. And there were a lot more than that that showed up. And one of those that didn't make it was iron butterfly. So, (laughs) so there's more to this story. So they're stuck at LaGuardia and a guy from the band calls the promoters and says, listen, we're stuck in LaGuardia. Is there any way you can give us some patience? And I guess they're they're just kind of they don't really commit to anything. So their manager gets pissed, and they clearly have a manager who wants to prove himself. And he gets on the phone, uh, or, or can't get through on the phone. So he sends a telegram because again, this is 1969, and he demands via the telegram the Iron Butterfly be flown in by helicopter. Now yeah, think heli- about this, okay? So Anagata de Vida had just hit, happened. So this is the height. This is what you know. This is the apex mountain of Iron Butterfly, and they are really, this manager thinks he can throw his weight around. So he says, here's what I want. Fly him by helicopter. As soon as they get there, put him on stage. I don't care. Just as soon as they get there immediately. After they're set, you got to pay him and you got to fly him back to LaGuardia. So the manager sends them to Port Authority to wait for the helicopter. Wow. They go. The helicopter doesn't show up. They come back. He sends them again. They go. The helicopter doesn't show up. They come back. He sends them a third time. To wait at Port Authority. And Woodstock production coordinator John Morris has since claimed that his response to this manager of Iron Butterfly was to send a telegram that read, and I'm going to emphasize certain words, so just pay attention. All right. For reasons I can't go into, stop, until you are here, stop, clarifying your situation, Stop. Knowing you are having problems, stop. You will have to find, stop, other transportation, stop, unless you plan not to come. And the first letter of each line in that telegram, I don't know if you were following along, spells out the acrostic (laughs) (laughs) F-U-C-K-Y-O-U. Oh, man, taking the time to do that. That's that's only, only someone who would be high would do that when they're they're dealing with like 
400, 500,000 people I mean, to send a telegram. Know, this in itself is a rock and roll bedtime story, right? It's like, yeah. Did, did this guy who had to do all of this coordinating and deal with all of the nightmares that were happening with this overcrowding in Woodstock, New York on this farm where, a, you know, was that guy really going to send a telegram with an acrostic? I don't know, but I'd like to believe it's true. You're welcome for that. So, yeah, the helicopter is the weirdest by the way watching watching the artist at altamont being shipped in by helicopter always is weird for me it's like seeing it's like seeing your superheroes or like santa claus with no clothes on <laughs> it's just strange to like see jerry garcia talking to someone going oh yeah the 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 they hit marty in the head with a pool cue yeah it was bad man and it's like it's just totally strange okay so they're they they didn't get out of port authority no, at so, all because there's no helicopter. This is the biggest they ever are, right? Um, is is kind of at this moment, and then they basically just implode. Um, wow. And and this pattern lasts up th- through the last decade, where what will happen is every few years they'll reform, and then they'll break up again, and then they'll reform. And I mean, the first time. It happens is after the singer leaves. So Woodstock is in 69. In 71, they go on a tour with Yes. Um, but the record label keeps pushing them to add horns. And they're like, we want you to sound like those fellas, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Um, and so the singer's like, this is not what I ever wanted to do, right? Um, so they do one final tour with a band that haunts our podcasting career, Black Oak, Arkansas. And... <laughs> They hang it up in 71. So they're done in 71. But in 74, two of the guys get this offer to reform again. Um, And Ron Bushy is the name of the drummer. And he's important here. Um, Ron Bushy has been in and out of Iron Butterfly pretty consistently through its entire existence up until somewhat recently. So usually if there is some touring version of Iron Butterfly happening... Ron Bushy is involved with, with the drummer. All right. He is the drummer. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And you know, that's always when a band reforms and they're like, we have the original drummer. It's like, no, that's not what we pay. That's not what we pay for. You're going down venue size when the original drummer is your, your, uh, best sell. Um, so Ron Bushy and Eric brand who, uh, were in that earlier lineup have to fill out the rest of the band. And so I, I literally think they like get together and they're like, listen, you try to find a guitar player or a vocalist and you try to find a bass player. And so Ron Bushy has a buddy named Philip Taylor Kramer. And he calls Philip Taylor Kramer and says, hey, what do you think about being in this reformed version of Iron Butterfly? And this is where our story kicks into gear. Hey, just a quick intermission between sets on Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories here to remind you that the show is brought to you today by Away Travel. You are looking to get out of your house, finally, and you're going to need a suitcase for it. And they have got exactly what you need, the perfect suitcase. They took the direct-to-consumer approach. They're keeping their prices low and their quality high. And you can feel confident that when you get an away suitcase, it's going to be with you for life. Don't just listen to me, though. Find out for yourself. Go over to podgo.co slash away, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O slash away to get started and let away travel make your journey seamless. Now, back to the show. Philip Taylor Kramer spends about four years in this new version of Iron Butterfly. 
their management sucks, and they end up getting a bunch of bad gigs. And eventually, he he's out. Oh, and he and Bushy, Bushy starts another band, and he plays with Bushy in that band for a little bit. So he fools around in the music industry until about eighty. And like every musician tired of playing seventeen minute bass lines, he decides after this. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about the I mean, it's all baseline. That's all baseline. That whole doom doom doo 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 doom 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 doom. It's all that, and it goes on for seventeen minutes. It doesn't even vary. No, it doesn't stop. So, oh my god! So he decides to go back to school, and he decides to get his degree in aerospace engineering. Yeah, right on, man. Okay, apparently he was always smart. There's actually several stories floating around the net about this science fair that happened when Philip Taylor Kramer was 12 or 15, depending on your source. And apparently, I've seen this several places, he was, he was grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, and at like Youngstown Elementary or whatever the name, I actually saw the name of the school in one of these articles. He built a laser for his science fair, and the laser popped a balloon and he won the science fair. And if you read about this, they basically paint this like the best 80s movie you've ever seen. Like Breaking Away times seven. Like it's just like... Or, or, he, real, or real genius, literally, <laughs> where they make the, the weapon that's the laser that pops the popcorn at the end okay. with Val Kilmer and his penis stretcher. Real genius. So he comes by this science nerd naturally. This is where this story has so many layers of weirdness. So... His dad is a super geek. He was an electrical engineer who started teaching at the university level and had a pet project of trying to prove Einstein wrong. In the early 60s, wow. in his physics research, Ray Kramer, Philip Taylor Kramer's dad, grew convinced that the universal speed limit imposed by Einstein, the speed of light, yeah. you know what the speed of light is off the top of your head? No. 186,000 miles per second. Okay. Ray Kramer became convinced that this could be surpassed. And this involved complex extrapolations about energy and mass and gravity and hyperparticles and all that stuff, right? Mainstream physicists think this is ridiculous, but he was convinced. There's even a story where teenager Philip Taylor Kramer would peer at his father's scribblings and say, Dad, how come you're always working on on this one equation? And his dad would say, there's only one equation. It's all one equation, Philip. It's all one equation. Now, this sounds insane and weird, right? Man, waking and baking sometimes in the morning (laughs) is a weird thing to do, but it it generally gets you started pretty great. It sounds like his dad was on to something. So this this becomes a big big part of this weird-ass story. So hang on to this factoid, okay? So Philip Taylor Kramer gets his rock on an iron butterfly and then returns to his first love of getting real smart and he has quite the career so he leaves school and he gets a job working for a contractor of the u.s department of defense and he helps Mm. build the mx missile guidance system wow holy crap man then he starts getting in on the early end of the computer industry and he starts working on fractal compression and facial recognition systems. That crap in your iPhone to unlock it is based on stuff that came from Philip Taylor Kramer's early work. Wow. So what a crazy Oh dude. We are not even to we are not even to the exit before crazy. Okay, so 
Okay. We left him in 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 seventy eight eighty, right? And now we're going to jump to ninety. So all this stuff happens between eighty and ninety. So in ninety, he he starts his own company, and again, it, it, he's always on the periphery of like fame and notable things happening, right? He starts a company called Total Media Incorporated with one of Michael Jackson's brothers. Which one? Randy. Not Randy. Not uh, not, yeah, not American not Idol that, Randy. <laughs> not the guy from Journey. No, not him. Uh, so Randy, who was in the Jacksons, is in this business bid with him. Total Media Incorporated, and, and they do CD-ROM data compression. Now, we... We've probably talked about this some, just you and I, as friends, when we talk about our lives and how things work out. But have you ever known somebody who was too early on an idea? Oh. Like, for instance, we do know somebody. Our buddy, our buddy Dan was too early on the podcasting idea to run his own podcasting studio. He did it like eight years too early. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. And now there's like yeah. seven of them in our city. And he had one almost 10 years ago and it was a it was a fight right cuz th- the people weren't ready for it philip taylor kramer was very obviously one of these guys right and he was too early on the cd rom data compression and there's a long read that we'll put in the show notes that was published in 1996 in the washington post that is amazing about philip taylor kramer and the writer takes some liberties about how he tells the story and it's like kind of strange that it was ever in the post cuz it at certain points, he's like, yeah, far out, bro, and like stuff like that. Like, I don't even understand the tone of it. But he's he tells this story about like how Philip Taylor Kramer was trying to get people to use CD-ROMs to make like interactive stuff, like stuff that now would like totally make sense, but he was just too early on it. And he was trying yeah. to get the school system in his in, in the town that he lived to use it to uh, put like lessons on and stuff like there's all this and it just it wasn't he was too early and so what ends up yeah. happening is um, after things go okay for a while for Total Media Incorporated the company runs into some trouble and they have to reorganize and and, and I, I it's unclear to me if he was like the president or just the founder or the owner but this move of going into bankruptcy you know, just putting on the business hat moves him from the top of this company and and they bring in this other guy to be a fixer. So they bring in this guy, like the board of his company brings in this guy named Peter Olson. So we got to stop here for a second because this is a, this is, I've only found this in one source, this weird rabbit trail in this story, but it, it actually is really interesting. Have, you're a little older than me, so maybe you would, you would know about this book. Have you ever heard of this book, the Celestine, the Celestine prophecy? Yeah, God, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, it's high school. I don't know. It's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really big in the summer of 94, which is around all this all The Celestine Prophecy. Celestine Prophecy. There you go. Yeah. Okay, so it's basically like a bunch of New Age cliches, right? But they, it's it's kind of a little bit, it reminds me, reading about it, it reminds me of the, um, the Apollo, hello, what's the name of that book? totally blanking on where it's like a story but really it's it's more than a story it's kind of like it's a a parable or something and you're supposed to take all these life lessons from it and uh the your your horoscope (laughs) yeah that too (laughs) um 
So total total multimedia or total media incorporated's new president Peter Olson swears by the the principles in this book. So he comes in and he starts talking to everybody in the company about how energy fields and vibrations and intuition yeah. can affect people and events. Olson used to work at IBM. And he says he was recruited to help turn around, like I said he was going to fix this uh, total multimedia incorporated. And he considered this a once in a multiple lifetime opportunity. That's how this guy was, right? He just, that's how he spoke. And Olson negotiated, this is crazy, to come in and fix this company, he negotiated an annual salary of $600,000 and he brought in a, a shaman into the company as a consultant and he paid him $5,000 per session with the, <laughs> with the 30 person staff. And the shaman would serve as a quote fan to clear negative energy out of the room. Yeah. Um, so, I bring this up because fascinating. Philip, where was the where was the company located? Uh, <laughs> was it California? I, I have to no. I yes, 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 yes. Uh, okay, yes. got it. So Philip Taylor Kramer becomes fixated on this book too because this new guy is talking about it all the time at work, and the book tells of a middle aged man's search for nine mystical insights, and it culminates with people entering a magic flow and becoming beings of pure spiritual energy. Their atoms will vibrate at higher and higher and higher levels. And you know what happens eventually? If, if you're, if your atoms are vibrating higher and higher and higher, you, you you explode, you disappear, you disappear. I was like, do you become Tom Cruise? Like you get at that level I mean, of the organization. This is, this is real close to something like that, but okay. So, that's crazy. Jan- okay. January 1995. The CEO, Dan Shields, and Tom Simpson, TMM's other partner, are really worried about Kramer because he's starting to just be erratic and weird. He'd stay really late into the night. He'd come into the office boiling with excitement about his fractal and light speed research. He, they find out he's working on this stuff that his dad was working on when he was a teenager. And he began making pronouncements like, God's a scientist, a perfect scientist. Chaos is perfect order. And then he decided oh. that he and some of the guys at work, like the CEO, must have been brothers in another life. And he's like bringing all this into work. So there's Canadian investors in this Californian company. And they're starting to get really annoyed with this Peter Olson fellow that they brought in. And Kramer's kind of caught in the middle. So because he glommed on to he like they brought in this Olson guy and he'd said, OK, I'm in. But all his other partners were hard science types and they were not into the shaman in the conference room and they were not into talking about past lives. And, you know, this is you can see how Philip Taylor Kramer is kind of fighting against this like rock and roll 70s version of himself and this like really smart academic version of himself. Yeah. And, and, and is, is it drugs? Well, is that was happening. They, you know, it's. I will go ahead and say it's not drugs. From from anything okay. I can read, it's not drugs. And okay. okay, so the little company that Kramer hoped would save the world was being ripped apart. And on the weekend of February eleventh, nineteen ninety five, one of TMM's directors, Robert Papalia, was flying from Vancouver, BC, intending to take legal action to oust Olson, not Kramer, Olson, the the, the shaman friend. Another guy was coming from New York, and Kramer was supposed to pick them up at the Los Angeles airport on Sunday morning. An airport parking lot attendant confirms that Kramer was at the airport that day. 
but he never picked up the business associate. Huh. This is the story that ends up on both Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. No way. Last known location, a green Aerostar minivan on Highway 101, about 30 miles north of L.A. Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries. A rock star turned computer whiz alone in his car on the freeway. A desperate call to 911, and then nothing. The man and his vehicle literally vanish into thin air. What happened to Taylor Kramer? When they play the tape on two national TV shows, that's where it ends. But it's not the end of the tape. Kramer's family authorized release of the 911 tape to the news media on one condition, and that condition was that the second part of this could not be aired. Now remember, this is 1995, and here it is. And I want everyone to know, O.J. Simpson is innocent. They did it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, depending on what you read, there is some discussion that because he worked in video compression and and fractal technology and all this stuff that really had to do with video, that he had been asked at some point to look at tapes that were related to the O.J. Simpson case. What? There's a, there's a Democrat in Ohio who was a representative at the time in 1995, and his name was James Trafficant. And he knows, he, he knew Taylor's family, and he urged the FBI to fully investigate the national security implications of this disappearance. He says, quote, somebody may have grabbed him for nefarious purposes. Foreigner domestic terrorists could have brainwashed him. And they think, and, and this guy's theory is they could have, he's so smart that he would be able to do things like launch a nuclear strike. So the FBI briefly looks into this and says that is total bunk. Now, Ron Bushy, remember that guy? He and yeah, he is. and he and Philip Taylor were best buddies, you know, before and after Iron Butterfly. They're still best buddies. In fact, when he's in the green van, before he calls nine one one, he calls Ron Bushy. Okay. Now he also calls his wife, and the day before he told his wife, and this is from I think from the Washington Post story, he was manic, jumping with glee as he told Jennifer, "quote I have finally proven that my father's theories for the last thirty five years are correct." So, <laughs> oh God, okay. This is February nineteen ninety five, and they spend the next almost two years looking for him. Once the story goes on national TV, people start calling from with tips from all over the place. People saw him playing Iron Butterfly covers in a bar. He came in a pawn shop and he talked to computers. A psychic even said that an Indian tribe was worshiping a six foot he was really tall, a six foot five white man as a god. And his family actually sends somebody to check this out. This is how bizarre it is, right? But there's nothing. There is nothing. There's no car, there's no credit cards, there's no trace of him. Nothing. Unsolved mysteries. Until wow. May of 1999. Oh, okay. So now I'm going to... So there is... And what's really interesting about this is because of online archives, you can read all of the reporting from 95 until 99. So the, the long 
read that I mentioned from the Washington Post that we'll put in the show notes, it was written in 96, about a year and a half after the disappearance. So it is written with this still being a total mystery as to what happened to him. This is from the LA Times on May 31st, 1999. Human remains found at the bottom of a canyon in the Santa Monica Mountains are probably those of missing Thousand Oaks computer entrepreneur Philip Taylor Kramer, the former bassist for the rock group Iron Butterfly, who disappeared more than four years ago. The discovery was made Saturday afternoon by two hikers traveling in a canyon about one and a half miles east of the Pacific Coast Highway off of Decker Canyon Road. The remains were found about 450 feet below Decker Canyon Road inside a 1993 green Ford Aerostar van. Decker Canyon Road is a mountainous pass of switchbacks that run between Malibu and Westlake Village. The hikers had been in the area shooting photographs of abandoned vehicles when they came up on Kramer's van. Hiker Walter Lockwood of Hollywood was the first to spot the remains, deputy said. We came upon a Ford Aerostar, which was fairly intact from the backside, Lockwood said. We had to shimmy around to get to the front end. It was completely smashed. The windshield was completely shattered. Lockwood said he looked in the passenger side window and saw what appeared to be a human leg bone sticking up from the seat. I freaked and told my friend, and my friend said, no way. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. It couldn't be. It must just be the stick shift. After What a weird detail. After further inspection, Lockwood and his friend, who asked not to be identified, determined that they were indeed human bones. They headed south across the creek to an area covered with grass and dead leaves. As I was walking through, I stepped on the back part of the skull, Lockwood said. I just let out the most primal, guttural shriek. This was in the L.A. Times. <laughs> Dental records will be used to make a positive identification, but authorities are all but certain the remains are Kramer's according to Sergeant John Jones of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department station in Lost Hills. Can you go back to the O.J. thing? <clears throat> like that was the thing he said on 911? Yeah. And and so the family let the media have that, so, but no, they couldn't they, hear they, it? They didn't let – they let him have the 911 <laughs> tape, but they wouldn't let him have the part about O.J. Simpson because it okay. makes him sound crazy. So there's, there's several theories, right? One is that – he had, I mean, he had just, his mental health was, you know, yeah. if we're doing Occam's razor, right? Like the, the it's his mental health, it's his mental health. But I mean, if you want to get into conspiracy theory land, there's a lot of places, right? There's the U S government knows he's just proven that the speed of light is different than we've been teaching school children. <laughs> there's, he knows something about the OJ Simpson case. Uh, <laughs> there's he actually achieved what was in the Celestine prophecy and he disappeared because his atoms vibrated at such a high frequency. I mean, oh. you can you can just see how for four years people had no explanation for this. And the the piece that was written in ninety six ends with his dad, Ray Kramer, the guy who's been trying to prove Einstein wrong for all this time sitting with the reporter and and basically saying there's no way that Philip killed himself. There's no way. Of course, I think all parents say that. I have questions, but I need to wait until it's a good time to ask. <laughs> I, we're good. That's I mean, that's the end of the road right there. Good God. Okay. Well, I mean, what an amazing, unbelievable story. I just Brian. can't believe it. Easily, okay. easily your best. Here's, here's the other thing that I cannot believe about this 
why is there not a true crime pod all about this story? Like, let's go back and interview people. I mean, like there is sounds like sounds like you just made it. Well, there's been uh, there's just not a whole bunch about this story out there. I happened to see a mention of it. And once I had his name, I I was like, wait, what? Like literally a sentence. It said, like, is it true that the Iron Butterflies bass player like tried to prove Einstein wrong? It was something like that. It wasn't even about his disappearance. And I was like, what in the world? And so as soon as I got his name into the internet, you can find several pieces about it. But there's no big repository for this stuff. This is There was a lot of research that went into this. So, I mean, what a story. And I was a little worried that maybe like I just was the only person that didn't know it. And I would tell you and you'd be like, yeah, dude, I've always known that story. Everybody knows that story. No, and that guy used to play that same bass lick for 17 minutes every <laughs> single what, night. That's what hurt like, his mental health. One, one, one of the smartest guys. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. So here's my question. I have one question, okay. and then one question only. So the vehicle, there's a 911 call, and then after the 911 call, his whereabouts are unknown for four years. Four years. So where they find the van, you said it was like the Santa Monica Mountains off the PCH or yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how was it how was it that easy to hide an automobile wherever that is? Since I don't know where that is. So, but we, to me, it seems like you would be able to find a car. So here and here, then. And did he sh- and did he shoot himself or was he just there's a car accident and blunt trauma? Uh, you know everything. That I'm not even sure they know because it's four years. So at this point he's bones. Um, but oh wow! From what I can gather from what I've read, I believe it was blunt force trauma. And I think the answer to how he remains hidden for so long is you know a key part of this story of the discovery of his body is that these guys were specifically looking for cars that were abandoned in the wild. It was like a photo project they were doing. Hmm. And so they found this, Oh wow. Look, there's this van. Right. But I think it was that, I mean, they did all sorts of searches and stuff for him and they knew roughly where he was because they knew he was coming from LAX. He goes to LAX, drives around the parking lot and then decides to leave without the people he was supposed to pick up. There had to be a reason for that. I mean, he might have made the decision before that. Well, I mean, again, there's there there always have been tons of theories, right? Even before the body was found, there was a, a theory that was about how he had just put everything he had into this company. And he got it. He had to put it into bankruptcy. He got it taken away from him. And then the person they gave it to was ruining it. And then that's the part I, until I got the long read that really goes into the whole thing about the weird guy from IBM that they hired to take it over to be the fixer. Yeah. You get Uh that element of how hopeless it was for him. Right. Mm. Because yeah, he, he gets given to this, you know, this guy who's just nuts, who's coming in saying, you know, Oh yeah, we're all just, let's make our atoms vibrate. And, while it sounds like he's being a team player and trying to play along and take whatever he can from that, I think, you know, my theory probably is that, if I had to pick one, is that he was just so depressed at what had happened to his to his life and his life's work. 
But yeah, I mean, his and wife, it, his wife refused to believe him for years. Also, what's really messed up, and I cut this out of the L.A. Times piece that I re- when I read it to you. But there is a whole thing in the L.A. Times piece about the discovery of his body. How the freaking reporter goes to her house, and like well, I was turned away at the house because they said she had just found. Yeah, dude, she just found out. Like, why did you go to the house and try to talk to her? <laughs> Wow. Well, since then, the L.A. Times has a paywall, so they they have different they have different reporting standards <laughs> since since this this weirdness. Uh, I mean, it, it, there is some like I said, the Washington Post piece from '96 is is strangely written, and again, I think it was I think it was specifically in a Sunday section or something, and it was it was written as a feature, so they were able to be looser with it. But it is strange. But you can go. I mean, it's long, and you can really get in. That's the best piece of reporting that I found on this story. Is that? But there's a lot of little stuff floating out there, and I mean, there is an episode of America's Most Wanted, and an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Wow. Well, those are things I can actually share with my spouse, and she'll think that this is interesting. Oh, I know. The first person I told this story to was my wife. She, you know, typically she does not know what we're talking about on Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, but I was like, here's one that's going to cross over, my friend. (laughs) She loved it. She was like, this is so good. I want to see if any of my podcasts have covered this. And I was like, thanks. You know, you could just listen to my podcast about it. Right. <laughs> Let's see if two middle-aged women have, have read Wikipedia enough about it. <laughs> wow. So, hey, if you've got a story like, if you have ever even heard a crazy rumor like that, we'll hunt it down for you because that's what this has become, right? It's like, wait, what? Uh, and then we, you know, we dig into the archives and we see what we can figure out. Uh, we'd love to do it for you. It's we are the story guys at gmail.com. We are the story guys at gmail.com. The website of course is we are the story guys.com where you can find other podcasts and projects that we work on. And, uh, whoo, man, I think there's only one way to end this episode. Murdoch, do you know what that is? Is, is it with Slayer? Because it, I oh, figure dude. that's, yeah, that, <laughs> that's exactly how we're going to end it. Hey, Hey, what, what do people have to do, uh, until next time? Keep listening to Slayer. Yeah, buddy. And telling stories. <laughs> <laughs>